Hello and welcome to Dyslexia Explored. I'm Darius Nomderon, your host. Today I've got an interesting guest because he does a job that you wouldn't normally expect on the face of it to be done by someone with dyslexia. He has worked in the entertainment industry as the script coordinator for movies like Xena, Warrior Princess and Nutty Professor 2 and then Blue Crush and he's also become the author of books like Billy Bobble Makes a Magic Wand and Kaya and the Morian Treasure. I'd like to introduce to you R.S. Mellet is his uh, author name. Robert, it's great to have you here. Thanks, it's great to be here. I'm very much looking forward to this. Great, I'm looking forward to hearing your dyslexia story. Everyone's got a different dyslexia story and it's going to be fascinating to hear yours from grade one all the way to through the entertainment industries and scripting for movies and also becoming an author as well. So take us to the beginning, you know, what was life like before you discovered you had dyslexia? You know, what's, what's the context? Set the scene for us. Where did it all begin? You know, like so many people, I had no idea, but I do remember, I remember first grade very clearly. We had the, you know, the Dick and Jane readers, see Dick run, run Dick run, you know, that kind of thing. And when we got the books on the first day, we're flipping through the books. And I remember there was a page, you know, halfway through the book, three quarters of the way through the book that had no pictures. And I was very much afraid of that page. Everybody else around me, all my friends were afraid of that page. The kids who could already read, they could care less and we hated them. But I was very much afraid of that page and so was everybody else. As we got closer to it, I was still afraid of that page. Nobody else in class was. I also remember becoming a bad kid. I was mean. I was being a bully. I was, you know, just for some reason, I was becoming a bad kid and I knew it. And I hate it, and I didn't know why. I think that's an important thing for adults to know, is that if your kid is, is becoming a bully, they don't want to be. You know, I very much remember not liking that. And uh, my parents, of course, thought that they had given birth to, to, you know, the second coming, and that I was the most perfect child in the world, like every parent does. And they were very concerned with me becoming a bad kid. They didn't understand why. So they asked my kindergarten teacher, uh, Mrs. David, she saved my life. Um, one of many people who saved my life. You know, they asked her, was he a bad kid in kindergarten? And she said, no, have you had him tested for learning disabilities? So in the middle of first grade, I got tested. That was my first big lucky break. I'm a very, very lucky man. My second big break was that I grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. There's a uh, little private school there. It's not little anymore. It's, it's grown tremendously. But at the time, it was a little private school called Summit School. And one of the founders of that school, it started in the 1940s, and one of the founders was still uh, tutoring there. And she had been trained in teaching dyslexic kids by someone who was, I don't remember her name, but she's huge, uh, huge in the dyslexic field from the 1940s and 50s. I think her name is now on some method for teaching dyslexics. So I was tutored by one of the first disciples of that, uh, Mrs. Futrell. And so in second grade, I got tutoring, which is very unique, I think, for, for dyslexics. 
not only did I get tutoring, but everybody was so concerned about my self-esteem that I was one of the first. My generation wasn't used to having, you know, like participation trophies and being told you're the most wonderful thing ever all the time. But I was I was raised on the list of famous dyslexics, you know, Einstein, Edison, Da Vinci, Churchill, Benjamin Franklin, Sigmund Freud, Cher. Uh, so when I graduated from high school, I was like, well, I'm obviously a genius. Just give me my money. Doesn't doesn't quite work out that way. <laughs> but I, wow, so that I was, is yeah. that is such a great, you know, break. I mean, so many children have to wait till they're like until they failed, you know, failing and falling behind in school and they're like 9 years old, 10 years old and they're still struggling with things they teachers expect them to do when they were seven, you know, and six. Um, but you got caught in first first grade. That's amazing. Yes. I Like I say, I am in, in the entertainment industry. Everybody talks about your lucky break. Well, my lucky break was in first grade. And it has nothing to do with acting or writing or any of that stuff. I had I had another another memory of I think it, it must have been uh, it must have been fourth grade, I think, because in second grade, I was being tutored when other kids were learning math. Well, one day, Mrs. Futrell wasn't there, so I had to do math, and they brought me up on the, you know, they brought a bunch of kids up on the board to do long addition, you know. I had no clue, never seen it before, and I'm standing there trying to fake my way through like every other dyslexic has had to do with reading. And obviously, I didn't know what I was doing, so the next day or the next time I went in for my tutoring, Mrs. Futrell taught me uh, all of second grade math in a day. And I just loved it because, you know, math has rules and the rules don't change. And and so that, you know, boom, I picked it up really quickly. But I stayed in regular math up, up through fourth grade. And then in fourth grade, we're sitting in a regular math class and there was an advanced math students uh, were off on the side. And I was sitting right next to them. And they were learning like base three and base four and, and different kinds of uh, advanced math stuff. And uh, some of the kids sitting close to me weren't getting it in the advanced math thing. And I was sneaking them the answers. <laughs> and I think the teachers noticed that. So I got I ended up getting a, going into advanced math uh, along the way. Again, some at school was, you know, they were used to that. They they had lots of dyslexics and it was great to have teachers who had an eye out for you. Also, my mom, my mom ended up having to get a job there so that I came in as a faculty kid in second grade. Um, so anything I did, my mom found out about immediately. <laughs> was, well, that, that would help with the bullying, wouldn't it? Yeah, along about sixth, seventh, eighth grade, it didn't, uh, it didn't help as much. <laughs> had nothing to do with school. Yeah. So one of the things that... I ask folk is what woke you up to dyslexia and you it was obviously that kindergarten teacher and getting the assessment and being part of that school what was your main challenge would you say um it was uh I'll, I'll answer that by talking about the best definition I ever got from someone about dyslexia uh, I think I was in ninth grade maybe eighth grade and there was a class being taught at Wake Forest University called Learn to Learn. And basically, it was a professor, a psychologist, psychiatrist or something who had put together a, a class on how to study and how to learn. So I took that class and 
you know, after the first day, I went up to him and said, you know, I'm dyslexic, so blah, blah, blah. And he said, really? Best answer I've ever heard about dyslexia. Wish we knew what that was. And that that sparked my, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to listen to this guy. <laughs> because everybody else is talking about letters backwards and blah, blah, blah. And reading it is like, no, you don't understand. Wish we knew what that was. Great answer. And then he said, what we think is that you look at an athlete. Some people are natural born athletes. You just hand them a sport, hand them a ball and a bat or whatever, and they can play it. It just comes so naturally to them that that is not even work at all. But if you are an athlete, if you're not a natural born athlete, that doesn't mean you can't become a professional athlete. You just have to work a little harder at it. Most people, most human beings are natural born readers. You know, they're the cells in the brain that are set up for reading and, and they're, they're kind of pre, pre-wired. Most dyslexics are just not natural born readers. Doesn't mean you can't uh, become a professional reader. You know, I've got my theater degree. I can read Shakespeare cold, uh, but I had to work harder at it. You know, and I, I remember that all the memory that sparked that was actually uh, uh, I got tutored again in sixth grade, fifth grade, something like that. And they had this machine straight out of the 1950s. It was crazy. It shined uh, words up on the wall, but it only showed you like three letters at a time. And it would scan left to right, left to right, left to right, left to right. And I had to go in there and read entire stories off of this thing uh, just to get, you know, just so my eyes were going left to right, left to right. And you could adjust the speed. So it would go from really, really, you know, I started slow and sped up, but every day go in left or right, left, or it's like a basketball player going in and going to the gym and dribbling. Well, I, I use the analogy of a manual car and an automatic car. Have you heard it yet? Uh, I think I'm, I go, go ahead, do it again. <laughs> it's like dyslexia is like being a manual car in a world of automatics. There you go. There and you go. then you go to school. Driving school is like school is like driving school being taught to drive your car and your car is your mind. And you get manual Ferraris and you get automatic Ferraris, you know, but if you're yeah. not taught how to drive a stick shift, then your stick shift Ferrari can feel like it's, you know, a lemon. You know, like, what? why yeah. is it not staying in gear? Why am I why am I stalling all the time? Why can't I get up to 60 miles an hour like everyone else when they just put their foot on the gas? It just bumps up all the way up to 60 miles an hour. And a lot of people with dyslexia are driving around the world in Ferraris going 60 miles an hour in first gear, you know, yeah. because they've never actually learned how to go up the gears of reading or up the gears of studying. And that's uh, a big issue and so basically that's describing the psychological term of processing phonological you... processing or any other kind of processing some people are very manual at it and other people are automatic at it do you take the second part of that analogy once you learn how to drive a stick you can drive circles around an automatic absolutely i do 
because you can drop down in a second. You could boom, you you are so much quicker. Uh, one of my LD teachers, uh, not not my LD teachers, a friend of my mom's, uh, who who was an LD teacher. She said, "Oh, you're dyslexic. I love my dyslexics. I take all my problems to them." Yes. When I was single and I would be, you know, talking in a bar and somehow dyslexia would come up and somebody would say, uh, you know, I'm dyslexic. I think I'm dyslexic. Sometimes I get phone numbers like transposed and stuff. And I'll look at them and say, uh, do you solve problems faster than your friends? And the non-dyslexics will go, huh? And the real dyslexics will say, yeah, what is that? Drives me crazy. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So we're really automatic at the problem solving side of things, the higher level function side of things, but we're really manual at the lower uh, level administrative clerk side things like reading and writing. Yeah. And, and like I say, uh, you know, I would I do I do know how to drive a stick. I would rather drive a stick. Except when you get old, your knees start to hurt. <laughs> And I think you're kind of an example. That's a good segue to, you know, once you learn how to drive a stick, you become a better driver. You can become a racing car driver. You can often drive a wider range of vehicles, for example. You know, many specialized vehicles are sticks. They're not automatics. Like many trucks are 18 gears. To get up to 70 miles an hour, you need to go up 18 gears to get up to there, you know. And if you've got no idea of how a stick works, then you're never going to get be able to use that. Um, but if you're dyslexic and you're used to being manually solving these processing problems and being very intentional about it, you can actually turn a disadvantage into an advantage. And I'm wondering whether or not you were so intentional about all of this reading and writing side of things that that's maybe given you an edge when it comes to script writing and has it made you a different type of screenwriter because i know you're a screenwriter and you're a screenwriter on xena now you're an author can you tell us talk to us a little bit about the whole screenwriter experience um yeah and i think you're right i think it does it definitely affects your kind of approach screenwriting um, is almost made for dyslexia because you don't have to really fill in a lot of details. There's a whole, you have, uh, it's kind of, I say it's like writing a symphony. Um, you're not writing for the, for the public. You're writing for a bunch of professional readers, uh, designers, actors, all that stuff. You, the parts that you leave out are the parts they're going to fill in much better than you could ever write them. So, and also, like you say, going through that mechanical process, um, a lot of writers have a hard time with, you know, interior, New York apartment day, uh, you know, and then a description and then getting into the thing, the structure of it, where, uh, you know, a dyslexic like myself, who's been, you know, who's been tutored out the yin yang about, you know, forced into making your brain work the way writing works, goes, oh, rules, cool. And, and that picks up very quickly. Uh, and in terms of novel writing, and I, I say this to parents with, um, with kids who are dyslexic, who are reluctant readers, you know, find a writer who's dyslexic. Because, you know, like if you read, if you read my books, there's not going to be a 30-page description of the elfin forest's history before they go into it. It's going to be, oh, it's a big and scary forest owned by the elves. Boom, get to the action. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
uh, you know, and that's, that's something I think, you know, I, I haven't read a whole lot of dyslexic writers and I don't, you know, you generally don't know whether a writer's dyslexic or not when you're just scanning the things. But um, if you find in the reviews, quick and breezy read, your dyslexic kids are going to be into that. Yes. Yes. I, was it Enid Blyton that was dyslexic or that her contemporary, there was two really prophetic, pro- uh, prolific um, writers of that age, like the Hardy Boys and so on. And one of them was dyslexic. Um, but it is just, yeah, it is really useful to find an author that gets straight into the action, which script writing is all about, isn't it? To get straight into the action. Yeah, very much so. It's actually kind of fun. You know, that, that New York apartment day, you can put in, you know, the apartment is as messy as Joe's mind and then get right into the scene. The, the designers will figure out how messy Joe's mind is from reading the thing and, and fill in the blanks. As, you know, converting from screenplay to novel, you have, I have a trouble. It's not trouble. It's just an interesting part of the writing process is figuring out some readers don't want any more description than that. They will fill it in and they will enjoy filling it in. Yeah. Some want a description of absolutely everything in the room because they want to be spoon fed. I hate spoon feeding. Um, but I know that a certain amount of it is necessary to get everybody on the same page or in the same room that you're describing. So uh, finding out where the, you know, where the audience is, is a big challenge to any writer. One of the interesting things about writing and considering from a dyslexic point of view is that the crux of writing, the hard part of writing is not the actual writing itself. It's the coming up with the imagery. It's coming up with the story. You know, writing is just the mechanics. Um, So I think one of the reasons why you have so many dyslexics in the arts and writing is part of that is because we do have such quick minds. We do have, uh, uh, you know, our, our imaginations are, are powerful. Um, sometimes because we didn't grow up reading, we had to, our minds had to make up our own stories, keep us entertained. So it's not really surprising when you, you know, when you look at it from a dyslexic point of view, it's not surprising that there's so many dyslexic writers. Uh, you can write as slow as you please. The, uh, the real crux of writing, though, is coming up with, with something interesting, an interesting story. Yes, that's fascinating that you can write as slowly as you please. That's such a an insightful comment from a dyslexia person's point of view, because, you know, when you do have enough time to get your ideas out and refine them and distill them, then the magic comes, doesn't it? Yeah, those those quick, you know, those quick comebacks the hero always comes up with. Sometimes that can take a day. Yes. Yes. Tell me about what you think about this. I mean, um, we, I've, I run a company called Bullet Map Academy. I've got two companies, actually, one for children, Bullet Map Academy, and one for adults, Dyslexia at Work. And the, we do something called a story star, okay, to help children with dyslexia visualize their uh, story outline, okay? Mm-hmm. So what we do is we draw a five-pointed star, on the middle of the page and do a mind map with it. But this is the scaffold for the mind map. Five-pointed star. And at the top of the star is a face on the top branch. The next branch has 
eyes on it. And then the third branch is a foot. And the fourth branch is a hand. And the fifth branch is a crown. Because I made this up because those are five key elements in a story with a beginning, middle, and an end. So the face is the character in the scene. The eye mm -hmm. is what does the main character have their eye on and really want? Do they want to fall in love? Do they want to get rich? Do they want revenge? And then the foot is the thing that goes wrong, that stops them getting what they want, uh, the big problem. And then the hand is often the guide or, um, and the hand has a ring in it, uh, that gives some sort of help or um, advice or magic wand or weapon or something that helps them overcome. And then they keep trying that until they get to the crown, which is the reward at the end. That's great. That's, you know, that's definitely um, uh, in acting or writing. You know, you've always got the objective, which is your eyes, uh, the obstacle, which is your foot. I then I added, you know, because in acting, it was always just objective and obstacle. Uh, and then I added tactics, ah. which is how the character is going to get what they want. And that defines the character. Ah, right. Okay. You know, um, you know, we're seeing that in politics these days very clearly. You know, some politicians will not, you know, will not compromise on, you know, if they said, if they said the sky is blue yesterday, and the sky is still blue, they will maintain that the sky is still blue. Others will say, I never said the sky was blue. Uh -huh. Or I did say it, and I don't care. Uh, it defines their character. Um, oh, I see. You mean a, a character as a, instead of a character, but in their character, like moral character, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in that particular case, you know, uh, at some point, the the obstacle may you know the well the you know the the character may want something there is an obstacle in their way and then you get really interesting where the way around that obstacle may compromise their character or may oh, may yes. get in the way of what kind of person they are so there's um, the temptation of do it easy and quick or do it hard and long and the, all yeah. that sort of dynamic, yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, how they uh, overcome the obstacle defines their character, um, uh, which is also, you know, which is kind of, and the guiding hand is often a part of that. Uh, you know, Merlin saying, you know, saying to Arthur, giving him, you know, you can do it this way, you can do it that way, it's up to you. Huh? <laughs> um, so the, that, that kind of does come in with the guiding hand. Yeah, and then I forgot your I forgot your last two, but um. uh, the last two is the hand and the crown. So, oh right, yeah, and getting what you want. The other thing is that it's a fractal equation. Um, you have that over the arc of the entire story, and then each scene has that. The, those same, uh, you know, if the the character's objective is, you know, is to you know, get the girl, then in the first, when he first sees the girl, he needs to talk to the girl. So you've got a sub, you know, a sub objective and a sub obstacles and, and yeah, all of that. So, so they want to talk to the girl. How do I get to actually be with her and talking to her? And that becomes the micro goal there, you know? Yeah. 
yeah for american football players you know you're you're arcing or any sport really your your overall goal is to win the game uh in american football that means you know you need to have the ball okay you've got the ball now you've got to go 10 yards to get a first down to go 10 yards that means that the tight end has to block the defensive end and the tackle you know and each character has their objective to to get their micro objective done yeah all in the scope of winning the whole game of their major objective what i find fascinating when i teach children how to write a little story okay and some sometimes it can be a 12 year old with dyslexia has never written a story to a completion before because they just get stuck in the weeds of the grammar and the spelling and the handwriting and and going off forever on one particular topic, but never actually being able to wrap it up with a satisfying ending. When they're in this kind of conceptual realm of, I'm not writing many words, but I'm writing a, a keyword that goes onto this branch or a doodle here, or this idea, oh, that could be there and that could be here. If they stay in that conceptual realm, that's when the sort of magic comes out. Do you know what I mean? And they can move it around like a jigsaw puzzle. So it sounds like script writing is quite very helpful to stay in that conceptual realm. It is kind of, I mean, you, uh, you do have to, you know, you have to train your brain to think at the speed of your fingers. Um, I'll get to where in that conceptual realm, uh, which I'm dealing with now in Kaya and the Morian Treasure, I'm, I'm working on book three. Book one is just coming out. Book two is done. So for book three, I'm in the conceptual realm and I am stuck. Uh, and I'm looking for it to pop. I call, I call it a pop. Um, you kind of get, you know, you, you're just trudging along and getting this and getting that. And then suddenly, boom, the whole story will just appear in my brain. Um, from there, I know I can get the rest. I can do all the micro stuff and I can get everything going on. And, but when, when you get that conceptual pop, then it's time, then the discipline comes in. Then it's like, okay, now I have to think at the speed of my fingers for typing. So you're in the third book right now in the conceptual realm of the third book. Tell me, is it like, walking around in a landscape or in a city or in a town where like a new traveler, where you're just kind of like seeing the environment, seeing what's happening, but you don't really quite know what the story is. Is it kind of like that? Uh, It's very much like that. And for book one of anything, it's much more like that because you're, you're creating the world. You've got every, absolutely everything is fresh. Book three is hard because you're walking around with all these characters behind you and they're like, well, where do we go? What do we do? You know, and you're limited by those tactics. You know, you've created these characters. They now have a persona. So you can't just go, oh, blah, blah, blah. You know, you have to go, oh, okay. That character can go in that direction. And you can, you go with that. You go with Kaya, you go with Nadir. Um, And, and you've got to start, you know, you start thinking about structure that all you start thinking about a lot of things that professional writers think about that a, a hobby writer doesn't have to think about, you know, how it's how you're going to because you have to bring all the characters along. You can't have one just drop out. Um, 
So it's a lot harder. The, more, the further you go, the harder it is. Uh, because your options start to narrow and get limited by the tighter characters. They narrow and expand because you have to use that character. Yeah. You know, Shakespeare had the same problem. It's like, you know, oh, wait, I, I didn't write a role for my clown. Okay, yeah. well, I'll have him answer the door, you know. <laughs> um, and the, then you've got the scene in the Scottish tragedy where he's, you know, the, the drunken doorkeeper comes in and does a, does a comedy monologue, takes a bow and opens the door and goes off the stage. Um, so tell us about Xena. Um, Xena was a trip. Uh, and um, again, I'll, I'll tell all the Xena fans, um, you know, calm down. I know that when you introduced me, you said Xena movie. Some people probably lost their minds. We'll, uh, <laughs> there's no Xena movie, not currently that I know of, and, uh, but I'm way out of the loop, but I worked on the original series. Um, and, you know, I came, I, I got the job because I was temping at Universal, which I had been doing for a long time. And I landed on this desk, a really boring job. The phone never rang, which was great. Whenever the phone doesn't ring, I would write. And somebody handed me a fax from New Zealand and said, uh, here, this came to the wrong number, throw it away. And I looked at it and it was the pattern budget. It was the, the you know, we're going to do each episode for roughly this amount of money for a new series called Xeno Warrior Princess. Uh, and there was a note on it from the, from the guy who sent it who said, since we have the green light, I guess we have to do it for this. So instead of throwing it away, I called the production office and said, are you guys waiting for a fact? Yes, yes, we are. <laughs> so I put a note on the cover sheet and, you know, I'm old. Uh, I, should, I don't know if I have to explain facts, cover sheets to people, but uh, I put a note on the cover sheet saying, you know, if you need a uh, uh, writer's assistant or script coordinator, you know, here's my number. And that got me an interview with the uh, executive producer who did not hire me. Uh, his boss ended up telling his assistant, who was the one who said, yes, um, you know, somebody needs to be hired into that office, just hire somebody. So that guy called me and I got the job. But it's uh, for a, from a dyslexic point of view, it's kind of interesting because uh, I was the writer's assistant and I did a lot of the script coordinating work. Uh, script coordinator, you've got, you've got a script being prepped. You've got one being shot. You've got one that's already been shot. You've got another one that's at the story stage. There are all these different scripts and, and the script coordinator coordinates all that, but mostly changes. So when a writer makes changes to the script, you have to get those changes in. You have to keep the same page breaks. There's a whole bunch of software that's involved in this and make it very clear what's been, where cuts are, what pages are sent out, blah, blah, blah. It's, it gets complicated so that no one else is complicated. And there was, uh, I did this on Mantis, a TV show called Mantis that nobody watched um, long before, not long before Xena, just before Xena. And um, there were some dyslexic things like, I kept making the same mistake over and over and over again. And there, you know, I'd hand it to my boss to check it. And he would look at it and go, you made this mistake. And I would change it and come back and he would look at it and go, it's still there. <laughs> ah! Um, and usually, you know, dyslexics will appreciate it. It's usually on the tiny, small stuff that you, that you think doesn't matter, um, but it does. So it's, a, and again, I think you're, you know, it's another, it's another one of those cases where 
because I had to learn man- to drive manually to read and write down at a, at a whole different level. The fact of getting in there and, and making changes and stuff, um, and and having to do it so meticulously, uh, it doesn't come naturally. It's a learned trait for everyone. Um, but being dyslexic and having been tutored at such a young age, it was a um, a learned trait for me over and over and over again. Yeah, I'm going to make a guess that the person who was tutoring you was involved in some sort of Orton Gillingham uh, Wilson type reading program. Those are the two big ones. And the, the general gist of those, if you're not used to this in America, they're, they're big in America. Um, but it's very much understanding the rules of reading, the rules of how to pronounce certain letters and words and combinations and the exceptions and so forth. And actually, some children, when they learn the real rules, because most people don't actually learn the rules, it's like intuitively learnt, and you know what word sounds right because it just sounds right. Whereas other children who have gone through these programs actually know the rules and can be shown a made-up word that they've never been pronounced before, never heard pronounced before, and they will pronounce it exactly right according to the rules, whereas someone else hasn't and is automatic at it and will probably pronounce it incorrectly i yeah so i definitely learned all the rules um, and i hated the exceptions uh, i mean it's it's so remarkable we would call it phonetics yeah you know, um you know you, you yeah you definitely learn you know uh oh pronounce you don't pronounce the last e it makes the it makes the last vowel a long sound as opposed to a short sound uh, all of that kind of stuff. So fill in some gaps for us. So you, you go mm-hmm. to school, your biggest challenge, I asked you at one point what your biggest challenge was at school. What was your biggest challenge? You, you started to talk about maths and so on at that point. What, what, what do you, if there, if there was one big challenge you had at school with dyslexia, what do you think it was for you? Probably keeping my mouth shut. Oh, <laughs> Um, you know, I, and I don't necessarily remember this, but I guess I was, you know, today they probably would have said, Oh, ADHD. Yeah. Um, to which I would say, no, uh, I think if you're, I believe that if you're diagnosed as dyslexic, that should, uh, rule out ADHD as I understand the old, you know, definition of, you know, diagnosing ADHD was to rule out some of the other things. Um, I do remember in, in third grade, nah, must have been, a lot of things must have happened to me in fourth grade, uh, somewhere around in there. Uh, apparently, I was just talking way too much in class, but it was always toward the teacher about what's being talked about, adding new ideas, being energetic. But I was faster, so much faster than the rest of the class on concepts and so much slower on the reading that it was, um, you know, it was hard to, it was hard for the teacher to keep, to bring up the kids that needed to be brought up and to slow down me. Uh, (laughs) So at one point, the teacher put me in the back of the room facing the wall next to the pencil sharpener. So I'm sitting in the back of the room and I'm facing the wall for the whole class. I'd have to, I would turn out 
to listen when she was talking and, you know, turn back to my desk to do my work. And I would talk with whoever had to come sharpen their pencil. <laughs> and apparently that worked so well that they started making, uh, giving kids uh, these thick cardboard cubbies, like you would have it, you know, like in an office. Yes. You know, where you've got your, your cubby thing. Yes. They started giving those to kids so that each kid was in a cubby. You know, they, they were all, and I was still facing the freaking wall. I was like, I want one, I want one of those. <laughs> well, it's fascinating that because, you know, you know, a lot of people think that if you've got dyslexia, then it's not ADHD and vice versa. If you've got ADHD, you've not got dyslexia. Actually, probably 40% of people with dyslexia probably have ADHD as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I stand corrected then. I've, I'm not an expert on, on, yeah. on all of that. I'm just, yeah. I just know but, that I didn't feel like I had ADHD, damn it. I was just paying attention. Yes, yes, yes. And well, participating. It's, it's interesting because uh, ADHD has uh, been an interesting journey for me because I've often thought a number of my traits were just dyslexia. But n- more recently, I'm going through a similar experience I had when I discovered I had dyslexia in my, I think I was 30, um, when I discovered it. And when I discovered it, I was like, oh, I might be a little bit dyslexic. And then the person did the test and said, well, you're not just a little dyslexic. You know, this is a significant impact on the way you're learning. I'm not extremely dyslexic. I'm moderately dyslexic, I would say. But then I'm going through the same experience with ADHD right now, Hmm. where I'm not identified with ADHD formally. But I go through all the traits and I'm like, I'm just... So this is a attention issue, not a dyslexia issue. And now I can dis- discern, like, this isn't dyslexia. This is AD- an attention difficulty. And I've got a friend that I do another podcast with called the Personal Brain Trainer Podcast uh, called Dr. Erica Warren. And she's, we're just about to talk about ADHD as well. But she was telling me, you know, ADHD is, attention not attention deficit hyperactivity disorder but attention surplus disorder and that makes perfect sense you've got too much attention and you're picking up so many cues and then if you harness that with dyslexia (laughs) where often (laughs) dyslexic people are very big picture thinkers they Mm -hmm. see a broader view of things and you combine both then both play off one another as an advantage and also as a disadvantage because you know you've you you can get easily distracted but you can also get a lot of information from a wide-angled view yeah i've I've done plays where uh, i remember we were doing big river i think which was uh uh huckleberry finn you know mark twain and most of the cast was dyslexic and <laughs> we're dyslexic and Southern liberals. And in the script is the N-word up one side and down the other. Oh, well, wow. if, you're, uh, if you're a liberal from the South, you, it, you see if you're in the same room with the word written on a page turned upside down three feet away from you, you will run out of the room. You, a Southern liberal cannot say the word. It just, okay. you know, as, as well they shouldn't. But, you know, we're actors. We have to. 
and, and we're all dyslexics. Worst table read ever. I think it took us five hours to read a two-hour play. <laughs> it was just, it was terrible. But when it came to blocking the play, the the director was not dyslexic, and he would get into he would get into situations where you know he couldn't figure out where the actors needed to be because of all the rules of blah blah blah. And he's sitting there trying to solve the problem, and all of us are looking at each other, but knowing full well that if he backs up ten pages and has the other actor exit stage left, this problem is solved. But we had to wait for him to figure it out. Oh wow! Yeah, that visual spatial ability to position things and move things in a three D dynamic way. Yeah, and it, it's the very similar, I think, to my pop. You know, when you're thinking of a, of a whole story, to get a whole novel pop in your head. You know, problem solving is kind of the same kind of thing. It's like, boom, I know the solution. This podcast is sponsored by DyslexiaProductivityCoaching.com, which helps you organize yourself creatively with a productivity system for Apple devices. So you're now, you know, we've gone through the main challenge talking so much. What what would you say has been the the reward, if it's not too obvious? But what what would you say are the the rewards you've gained from going through this journey with dyslexia? Um, well, just having a dyslexic brain is fantastic. I, I was I, I said this I said this first, but somebody else said it at the exact same time. Um, having a dyslexic brain is like it's like having a Macintosh brain in an IBM world. Oh yes. Uh, the guy that, that will be quoted on that, um, he did a one-man show. I did the lighting design for it. And it ended up going, to, going on Broadway. Uh, he was uh, on the old TV show Soap. He was the ventriloquist. Um, so he's a dyslexic ventriloquist. And he did this one-man show about his journey of getting on stage and blah, blah, blah. And he used the exact same line. Um, and I was like, ah, man, that's my line. Oh, well. <laughs> um, but it's, it's very true. It's just you've got a different way of thinking. And it's fabulous. You know, well, so Steve Jobs was dyslexic, wasn't he? Uh, I don't know. I, I have yes. to add him to the list. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Steve Jobs, dyslexic. And Johnny Ives, who designed the actual uh, iPhone and iPad and the Mac, he hmm. is dyslexic. He's a British dis, uh, um, design student who Steve Jobs came over to London, spotted him, and then brought him over to Silicon Valley. And he became the head engineer at Apple and de designed the Mac and so forth. And you just follow the list of people with dyslexia, uh, especially designing the Mac. And in many ways. Well, touring, I heard. Recently, yeah, Turing uh, was dyslexic. dyslexic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there may be an antisocial thing that rides along some dyslexia, whether it's in the DNA or in the fact that you know you're you're not reading as well as other, or you're not you're not. What do you mean by antisocial? Well, Turing was antisocial. You know, Jobs was not great in his relation in his personal relationships. Uh huh. Uh, you know, it's, that's just the forming of an idea there. Uh, yeah, I have a very much out of sight, out of mind kind of thing that I, I kind of struggle with. 
Um, yeah, when people are out of sight, you forget about them. But then when you see them, it's like, hey. Yeah, I mean, everybody has that to some extent. You know, uh, <laughs> my wife will call me on it if I'm out of town and I'm not, you know, and I don't reach out and you know, let her know I'm okay. Um, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think if you're onto something there. Uh, maybe it's a bit of a broad generalization, but I think because we're so visual, often we rely on visual cues to get us to do certain things. So if we're, we, we often we externalize our memory, externalize yeah. processes, externalize uh, as much from our mind as possible so that our mind is for thinking rather than remembering. And that, that gets me back to writing because one of the things I've always said about, you know, why do you write? It's like to get these ideas out of my head. Once yeah. I put it on paper, I can stop thinking about it. Oh, wow. Yes. That's so true. That's so true. So tell me, out of interest, I often like to ask guests what their experience of mind mapping is because I'm so passionate about mind mapping. Do you use mind mapping? Do you know what it is? Uh, I do not. Um, I think I uh, I listened to one of your podcasts and, and you know heard you talking about it, and that's the first I've heard of it. Wow, that's now amazing. I might be I might have been doing it all along. I just don't have a name for it. Okay, you don't have a name. Okay, so I'll describe it for you. So it's where you put a central idea uh, in the center of a page, and then you draw branches off it with words on it. And then you do draw branches off of that with more words on it. And you create this hierarchy of words and branches and doodles to organize information. Uh, no, I've never been, I've never been the, the type to do that. I do it in my head. And I, as I get older, I should, probably should be jotting more things down. But I, I do that in my head. And then I, I just have a confidence that if it's not, you know, if the little branch is not strong enough, if the idea is not strong enough or good enough to stay, then when I forget it, it it won't come back. The ones that are really the ones that are really good keep coming back. Got you right. Well, that's interesting, fascinating. So, what kind of tools are in your toolbox? You know, what what are your go tos? You know, do, are there certain? Are you a Mac person, for example? If you're a Mac person <laughs> in IBM world, are you a Mac person? Oh gosh! Well, on my computer, on my desk right now, I have a Mac and IBM Surface and or a, a Microsoft Surface and a Dell, and I'm using and I, you know, my day job, uh, which I, you know, novelists all still mostly have a day job. Uh, I think I use, I log into the office and I think I use like five or six different computers. Oh wow! What is your day job? Uh, it's really boring, but. Um, very meticulous in terms of writing and stuff. I uh, upload movies to iTunes, Amazon, Netflix, uh, Disney Plus is a is a big one. Um, so I have to. It has to have a piece of uh, uh, software, XML software, to go with it. Which, if you have one character off, will crash completely. So it's <laughs> it's very it's a very strange job for a dyslexic to have. Uh, Often, you know, you're having to, to proofread things and get them right and look at this one, you know, it'll be a thousand lines of code. And somewhere in there, 
a backslash is missing. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so it's like, okay, I got to, you know, and there's, there's lots of tools to help with it, but, uh, yeah. but just in terms growing up being a kid who made careless mistakes all the time, you know, I would, I would get all of the math, all of the algebra, 100% correct. But then I, at the end I would do, and two plus two is five. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm going to make a guess here. Okay. Mm-hmm. That you rely on fast feedback. So for example, that code of a thousand characters, could you put it in and get feedback as to whether it's accurate or not quite quickly? Oh, immediately, yeah. And so you can work on a fast feedback loop. That worked, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work. Let's try this, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work, let's try this. Oh, it worked, bingo. And that's really appealing to a problem-solving mind as long as you got the feedback to feed that problem-solving machine. Yeah, it's definitely like, you know, the rat and cocaine experiments. Uh, <laughs> it's like, oh, yay. Uh, every 10th time I get it, I get a reward. Uh, yes. And it relies on that rapid feedback to train you and you get really good at it. So what kind of tools have you got in your toolbox? What sort of things do you do? What are, are, do you find are really important for you to, you know, function in life and be effective? <laughs> Well, um, because I was uh, diagnosed so early and, you know, got tutoring in second grade and then again in fourth grade, uh, I don't have a lot of, uh, you know, dyslexia doesn't come up unless I bring it up and I bring it up all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, there's not a whole lot. I mean, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a fast reader, but I read fine. Um, which is kind of weird to be a novelist. You're not going for the normal, you know, text to speech and speech to text and Grammarly no, no. and all that kind of tools. But uh, okay, got you. But then no, dyslexia I'm, I'm, can also affect memory and it can also affect planning and it can affect other aspects of life. Do you have any sort of hacks around those areas? Um, not too much, you know, not beyond the the phone and making sure I put things in the schedule. Uh, I actually learned about the memory thing from listening to your podcast. Uh, uh-huh. Before that, I just thought I was absent-minded. Um, so, yeah. uh, and so did my wife. Um, but and I don't think she believes the dyslexia thing, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not dyslexia. You just don't care. You just don't care. Uh, yeah. Well, the thing is... <laughs> People with dyslexia have been told that they don't care for most of their life. And it's, and there are parts of a person where they do not care, but um, there are certain times when they do care, but they don't remember. Yeah. And we also have to be, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of mindful of, you know, not saying, oh, that's a dyslexic thing because everybody has that, you know, everybody yeah. has something in, in their life that they think is trivial and unimportant. So they don't care about that, but it's very important to someone else in their life. And so they get accused of something. Uh, I think it's, it's important to know what's, what's just a human trait and what is a human slash dyslexic trait. Yes, absolutely. So what kind of, um, I often like to ask if you were to send a message back to yourself what year would you send it back to and what would you what advice would you give yourself (laughs) it 
it may be a little unique. Um, my dad worked for IBM in the 60s and 70s. Uh-huh. And when I was in, again, fourth grade, big year, uh, he brought home uh, a home computer. This was in 67, uh, 72, maybe. So there's no Apple. There's, there is no home computer. Nobody's making a home computer, but IBM made one. Uh, and they sent it home with their, their staff to, to get notes on it. Um, and I loved it. I played with it. And I wrote actually the very first computer game on a home computer. Um, wow. Uh, it was basically... You know, you'd, you'd just stolen the Mona Lisa and you're driving through Morocco and the police are changing, chasing you. So you're at a straightaway. You have to enter your speed. If it's too fast, you crash. If it's too slow, you get caught. Oh, there's a curve. What's your speed? If you, you know, and you, you, it was just a series of greater than, greater than, less than, and if then. Okay. So I think I would go back to myself at that age or doing that and say, stick with this. <laughs> you could yeah. make a lot of money doing this. <laughs> um, <laughs> so know, instead but, of writing scripts, it would be writing other kinds of scripts, which is uh, computer scripts. Computer games, yes. I could, I could, my, you know, all my ideas would be movies now because they started out as computer games. Yeah. Yeah. It's very frustrating by for for somebody who studied theater and, and, you know, has worked in film and been in live audiences to see a video game up there as a movie franchise. Yes, it is. Particularly when I did it first. <laughs> yes. So that's, that would be your advice. Stick with the, the, the coding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think so. You know, it's interesting. I was, I was listening to Steve Jobs talking about, computers and so on. He said he reckons everyone should learn how to code for one year because it teaches you how to think. It's very true. It's very true. Um, and I've done a little bit of that uh, uh, along the way. And one of the things that, you know, you don't realize about writing software is that your creativity is more important than your ability to know the code up one side and down the other. You have yeah. to learn the code to make your creative image happen. Yes. But, uh, you know, I've growing up around computers because of my dad, who was also a struggling novelist. So I grew up around computers and writing, and now I work in computers and I write novels. I have become my father. Um, the, uh, you know, it's frustrating when I and I work on third-party software. You know, software that's created for uh, for the job you're doing, and I can tell that the programmers were not creative at all. They just did the basics, and no clue about how this is being used, what would make it easier. Uh, they did not get that pop. They did not see the whole concept. Uh, well, it's very that, frustrating. That. That's interesting because I'm, I'm just about to teach myself how to code. I want to learn how to write an Apple um, iOS uh, software uh, applications for iOS, the phone, and for iPad. Because, And I've also started an app 
development company. Dyslexia at Work is actually an app development company where we're going to take all of the typical functions that people with dyslexia use in different apps uh, and pull them into one productivity app, uh, a way of staying organized on your iPad. And so I'm just determined to, you know, create this app because I'm just so fed up waiting for someone to just make this. I, I really want to make it around visual note taking, how to do it all visually and with words and so on, rather yeah. than um, it all being in lists. I just don't think like that. Um, but no one's created a mind mapping app that actually involves doodling and drawing and so on. It's all very, you know, um, hierarchical and computerized. Anyway, long story short is I'm going to learn how to teach myself to code, teach myself to code. And secondly, often I think people have the coding skills, but they don't necessarily know what the customer wants or needs. Right, right. And so I'm in that situation where I know what I need, but I don't know the coding skills. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and you can, um, so, you know, you could be the project manager on that and just, you know, hire someone who, who's got all the coding skills, but, you know, doesn't, doesn't have the vision. Yes, which is what I'm going to do, but I'm also going to learn how to code so that I know the language and understand the process as well you know it's like building a house blindfolded you don't know yeah. what's going on you know i need to understand maybe it's a dyslexic part of me i need to understand how it works yeah yeah no it's it's definitely a, uh, a good thing yeah so i would do the same i would do something similar probably go back and learn how to code but the americans indians say the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago and the next best right. time is now <laughs> uh, that's a good saying I have not heard that before and so I took that to heart I think I took that to heart about 10 years ago when I planted an orchard in my in my garden and uh, my wife used the quote back at me saying Darius you're doing the garden design and so on you know when are you going to plant fruit trees and she said you said best time to plant a fruit trees 20 years ago and the next best time is now um, the season is going to be too late in a month's time. And I was like, you're right. I'm going out right now and buying all the 12 trees and uh, planting it. And I'm so glad I did. Mm. So tell me about your current book. You've gone through this whole process. You're, 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 you're writing it in your, in, how much time do you, do you spend writing? Um, if um, you're also working. Right now, not as much because I'm in the I'm in the mode of of selling. So I'm writing articles and I'm uh, doing interviews and, and obsessively looking for new reviews. <laughs> um, but uh, you so know, do you it go varies. onto Amazon and check all your reviews all the time? Oh, every uh, I do. I think every writer does or should because it's feedback. You know, and yes. it's that feedback loop you're talking about. Yeah. Um, you know, I need to know, uh, did it work? And so far, knock wood, all my reviews have been good. So I'm perfectly happy with that. Or I should say favorable. Not all of them are well written. So uh, I say there's, there's good reviews, bad reviews, favorable reviews, and unfavorable reviews. Uh, so bring me up to speed. Bring me up to speed on what sure. you've got. So 
you've got so you've got two books out and one's just about to come out and one's in the pipeline uh yeah i've got um billy bobble makes a magic wand and billy bobble and the witch hunt uh those were my first two books published okay but they weren't my first ones written Ah. The first one I wrote is Kaya and the Morian Treasure, and that just came out last week. Oh, wow. And so I wrote that, I mean, going back to Xena, I, uh, being, being very dyslexic, I came up with a lot of ideas uh, when I was working on Xena. And one of them was to bring my friend who was doing the website into a meeting with the writers who were my bosses. And because I knew something would come out of that and I would be the only one able to do it. What came out of it was called the Xena Scrolls. Instead of just doing um, plot summaries of each episode, we came up with the idea that each episode was actually, the source of it was an ancient scroll that had been discovered by these archaeologists who were translating it. And so uh, I made it into the archaeologists' emails back and forth being published uh, for, the sake of, you know, for the sake of the TV show. Um, Yahoo reviews actually thought it was real scientists talking about real scrolls. So I call it the, you know, it's the war of the worlds of the internet. Um, <laughs> so when I, when I left uh, Xena, um, I wanted to do a Xena scrolls book, but I couldn't get a deal with universal and the newly created universal new media departments were fighting it out over who would own what. And I ended up losing. So I couldn't get a deal to do the Xena scrolls. So being dyslexic and doing problem solving, I did what George Lucas did. I took the structure of a female hero and a female sidekick with a female sidekick narrating and then not making a big deal out of it being women and moved it into space. So it's the Xena scrolls meet Star Wars. Okay. Uh, and so I wrote that in 1990. 7, 96, 97, and wrote it as a screenplay. People really liked it, got me a manager, got me an, uh, a couple of different managers, went to Imagine um, for a weekend read, which is huge. So it was really good, but everybody thought it was too expensive to make without an audience. Have you thought about making it a book? Well, I didn't want to be that guy. He's like, well, I tried to make it a movie. I didn't make it as a movie, so I'm going to do it as a book. Um, and my dad had been a struggling novelist all his life. Uh, so when I did finally decide to make it into a book, I decided to teach myself the art of novel writing. And I worked with my dad. He edited it up one side and down the other. Um, and, and I learned how to write novels writing this book. And now it's finally coming out. <laughs> um, it's been a long haul. Yeah. Yeah. So... From beginning to end, in terms of from the concept at the beginning to actually getting it published, where how long do you think it took in the end? Oh, God. Well, I started writing the book in probably 2007. Uh-huh. Got it finished and sending out to agents around 2000. Finished is a relative term. Sending out to agents around 2008, 2009. Uh, I got an agent from that, which only 2% of struggling writers ever get an agent. So, uh, again, that's, that's one of those reward things you have to keep, because God knows in this business, you get plenty of, of negative feedback, 
you have to really cherish uh, the good stuff. So I got an agent. It went out to all the major publishers. They all said, uh, uh, it needs a boy character. Girls will read books about boys, but boys won't read books about girls, which I find interesting. I think what they mean is that girls will read action stories. Boys will not read romances, in my mind. Um, But boys will read action stories regardless of the main character, you know, if you look at uh, Hunger Games or anything like that. Anyway, I got all this, this, and they didn't know what age group it was for. You know, I don't know what shelf it goes on. Is it middle grade? Is it YA? I was like, it's science fiction. Just put it on the science fiction show. So that went through a whole bunch of stuff. And then I finally went back to um, Elephant Bookshelf Press, who published Billy Bobble. They're very, very small press. But he tends to publish really, really good books that the publishing mainstream publishing industry won't pick up because it doesn't fit, you know, the, what, uh, what they're looking for. Yeah. So, uh, and that was, we were going to come out with it in 2000, in 2020. And then COVID hit. Ouch. Yeah. So, uh, so that threw us back. And then finally, after getting the idea for the story in 1996, it's finally coming out to the public uh, last week. Wow. So 96, 2006, 2016, 20. So we're talking 26 years. <laughs> you do math in your head better than I do. So that's but, yeah, 2016 I guess so. from the first idea to it being published. Well, that will give a lot of aspiring authors out there some encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. It's a hard haul. Yes. And, you know, you have to you have to write other things. You have to put it down. You know, put it down. Come back to it. I've done that so many times. But it's my baby. It's it's the one that I really love. I and like I say, I learned not only to the art of writing a novel, but the joy of writing a novel. Yeah. Um, you know, like I say, it's uh, I'm excited about it, and so far people are really liking. It. Good. Good luck with uh, the results. I'm really going to, I'm going to keep an eye on and look, I'm going to keep an eye on the reviews and see what happens. I know what it feels like. I've got, I published an app on the app store uh, called the dyslexia quiz. And uh, I was so frustrated with these dyslexia screeners Mm. that were just words. And I thought, why don't they have pictures on them? And why doesn't the screener read it out to you? And why doesn't the screener add up your score at the end and do all of that work? If you know that the person's probably dyslexic, you probably got difficulties <laughs> with some of this stuff, even if they're an adult, yeah. parents, yeah. their kids. So that's what we did. And so I, I'm a, I look up my, the app every once in a while, every other day, maybe once a week, and just look at how many reviews it's got and, how it's doing it's very encouraging to get some reviews so we'll put a link in the show notes to your book and your books and um if you are listening to this just swipe up on whatever app you're on listening to the podcast and you'll see the text with some hyperlinks in it to robert's uh books so you can go and check them out and download them i noticed when i was on amazon it's also on Kindle Unlimited as well, is that right? Uh, yes, it's an ebook. It's on Kindle Unlimited. Uh, there's also an audio book on the way. Fantastic. Um, which, 
again, you know, looping back to dyslexia, I remember in, I think it was, might have been first grade, we were doing, you know, sitting around reading out loud, eh, maybe second grade, sitting around reading out loud, and I wouldn't read out the he says and she says, because I was reading, it was out loud, and the teacher just gave me all kinds of problems. It's like, I don't need that because I'm doing the characters. doing. I don't have to read the he said, she said. They can all see it. Yeah. Um, and so for the audio book, I went through and lined out, you know, and if it said, you know, he said passionately, one, I would never write that. But if I did, I would put a line through the passionately because I knew the actress doing the narration uh, would see the line through. She would also know where the character is in the story and put that in her voice, I don't need to say it. So I got a little revenge on my teacher from <laughs> by cutting all of that stuff because oh, reading fantastic. it out loud is different. You know? So you, you basically script-writed it, script-writed your own novel so that it turned more into a script than, than, than just the novel. Exactly. Every time you change medium, you have to change the, uh, the, the content. Yes. A book read out loud is entirely different than a book read to yourself. Yes. yes. Which kind of freaked out the editor and, and, and the actress, because the first thing I told them is, I don't care about the words. <laughs> and they're like, wait a minute, you're a novelist and you don't care about the words? Because most writers are like, no, it must be slavishly done exactly as written. Yes. Uh, I don't care as long as the mood, as long as this feeling comes through. I'd rather have somebody have to pull their car off on the side of the road on their commute because they're so into the story than have the word be correct. Yes. So what you're basically saying is I care more about the ideas than the words. Exactly. And that's something actually really quite hard for people with out dyslexia to understand sometimes because like I don't I can't tell you how many times I've given a piece of writing to my wife and she's read it and I'm like I do not want you to tell me what you think about the writing I just want you to tell me to what you think about the ideas and sometimes she just can't get past all the bad mm -hmm. writing that she can't actually understand the ideas. And I totally understand that sometimes because there have been writing given to me and I go, I just can't get past how this is incomprehensible to actually understand the concepts. So I, I get it from their point of view because I've experienced it. But so often with dyslexia, you're like, look, just pass, look past all the detail and all the little, little things to the concepts and ideas to give me your feedback on that. Yeah, I'll, I tell people when, I, when I'm thinking about writing, particularly when I'm writing dialogue, I think of it more as painting with watercolor. Mm. You know, I'm in control of the color. I'm in control of where I'm putting the color, but I'm not in complete control about how it's absorbed into the paper, whether there's a little drip, uh, you know, the texture of the paper, all that kind of stuff, wherever the, you know, the color is going. So in a first draft, I'm painting with watercolor. And then when I go back and edit, I've got, uh, you know, an India ink pen that's really sharp and I can highlight, I can find what I like that both me and the paint and the paper have, have created and I can, I can pull out the best parts Yes, and leave could the you, messy bits because it makes it better. Could you extend that a little bit further as an analogy and start 
saying that maybe you erase certain bits and you maybe take out certain color and so on and allow the reader to start filling it in with their own color and ideas? Oh, absolutely. Negative space is a huge thing. Um, and in music, they have uh, implied notes uh, where you don't actually play the note, but the, uh, the audience hears it because you've played the notes around it. Oh, wow. I, I, when I was a primary school teacher, we were taught, I went, I was a teacher at the Rudolf Steiner school, uh, the or Waldorf school in America, if you know it. And we used to tell the children stories and often they would be Grimm's fairy tale stories when they were about eight years old. Hmm. And some of them are pretty gruesome. You know, <laughs> they are grim. Yes. Especially if you go to the original, which we were compelled to do. And it's not tidied up, you know, like, yeah. you know, the story about the princess and the frog, the real story about the princess and the frog is that the frog was at the well. She made a deal with the frog. She didn't hold up her bargain of the deal. The frog goes to the door, knocks on the door, tells the king about this. The princess is really angry eventually throws the frog against the wall to kill it and he slides to the ground and turns into a prince and she falls in love oh that's that's much better i think that's the real story of the princess and the frog right now yeah. the grimm's one anyway not the the dolled up one but the interesting thing that i noticed and this how this relates to script writing and writing and so on is that you can often tell a person a story that is very grim and gruesome and their imagination will increase the, the gruesomeness and the, 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 the nastiness and so on to the level that you can cope with in their imagination. Oh, yeah. Whereas, and I noticed this with some of the children, I could tell them a pretty gruesome story and the boys are painting a picture of something really gruesome, you know, and the, some of the others are dialing it down to something that they can cope with. And they're yeah. hearing the same story. Then the same kids go and watch Cruella de Vil at on 101 Dimension, Dalmatian, Dalmatians, which is a PG, and they're terrified because <laughs> what they see doesn't necessarily ma match what they would have imagined as a despicable, horrible, mean lady. Do you, do you get my drift? They, they yeah. paint it indifferently. What's your take yeah. on that? Well, it sounds like, you know, it's the same sort of thing as an, an implied note or, or uh, you know, filling it or negative space. Um, you know, I have tons of uh, uh, horror film friends um, they're into horror movies, they make horror movies. And, you know, there's always that line of, you know, some of them are just, I mean, like when they're, when they're absolutely horrifically gruesome, that they're, they're laughing their behinds off because it's just so ridiculous. It's funny. Um, and yes, the, you know, and, and the really good horror movies, the older ones particularly, uh, would do all the gruesome stuff off camera. Yeah. Which I think what, you know, what so many people say is what you can imagine is so much worse, but I think you might be more correct. What you can imagine is, is the limit to which you can stand. Yes. And I think that is the case because, or, or the limit to which you are willing to go to. Yeah. So like, if you want to imagine that 
horrendous thing happening off camera and you can't you you will go to that limit do you know what i mean yeah 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 fascinating and i i it's interesting about this whole process of painting in watercolor and then firming it up and that iterative approach that's very much a common theme with people with dyslexia i think which is embracing an iterative approach to creativity, which is like, I'm going to try this, get some feedback. Okay, I'm going to adjust and try that, get some feedback. And how important that feedback loop is, which often you maybe don't have within writing a, a novel per se, because the feedback loop is so much bigger, longer. Yeah. Um, and in that learn to learn class where the teacher gave such a great you know, description of dyslexia, that's part of what they taught. You know, one of the things was if you feel like taking a break, study just one more page, one more paragraph, one more little bit, and then take the break. Because the break is the reward. And if you get the reward, you know, right after you've done one more little thing, then you're going to do more and more each time. Nice. Also, they discover people learn better uh, if the feedback is closer to the result. You know, you, you study something and then, you you know, you have a little pop quiz, you have a little quiz on what you just studied. Well, you get the reward when you get everything right. Yes. You know, um, yes. so that, that helps the brain. So that's, that's one of those things where, where it's kind of an everybody thing. Um, it may be, you know, it's, it, with dyslexics, it's difficult because like with reading, the reward is the story. Yes. But often one, we're reading the story so slowly that it's like, oh, please just shoot me. Yes. And, you know, in my case as a kid, I was reading on, you know, I was reading books that were on a, you know, a great, a kindergarten level, but I was checking out Time Life's uh, uh, Time and Light book and giving it to my dad and making him read it to me. In second grade, I had, I, I comprehended Einstein's, Einstein's, you know, theory of relativity, but I had to read The Three Little Pigs. Yes. And, yeah. and so, the, you know, you, you're not getting the reward from reading. Yes. That's fascinating. Yeah. Robert, it has been fantastic uh, speaking with you. Um, any final thoughts or words that you'd really love to like to share with people who are, are listening? No, just, you know, if, uh, you know, if you are dyslexic and, and most, I mean, for the parents of, of kids who are, you know, who are struggling at a young age or who might be becoming that bad kid. Uh, if you found this podcast, you may very well be on the right track. Get your kid tested. Um, they don't want to be a bad kid. Trust me. And, you know, if for the adults who have just discovered uh, their dyslexia, welcome, welcome to the wonderful world. Uh, <laughs> you are you're about to have your mind blown and it will it will be a series of Oh, yeah, I'm not the only one. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to the world of the never-ending learners and the never-ending problem solvers and creators. Yeah, yeah. You're going to, you know, now that you know, that's going to be so much easier. Yeah. Well, Robert, thanks very much. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I know you're, you'll cut around the audio issues we had, but I hope it all comes out. 
Yes, I hope I hope listeners that the audio has been okay for you. We've been struggling backwards and forwards trying to get the right audio, make the best of what we've got. So I hope that's been fine for you. And remember to check out the uh, show notes for links to Robert's book that's just come out. Um, let me what what's it called again, Robert? Kaya and the Morian Treasure. Kaya and the Morian Treasure, where. Um, I'm looking forward to reading it. Good, good. You know, and for all of those who do, and for anyone who reads any book, put up a review on Amazon or, or Goodreads or something. I will do. We will. Yeah, yeah. Do that. And it, it's coming out in audio. When's it coming out? Because I really love listening to audiobooks. Um, we are. Uh, we've submitted it all to Amazon, so we're waiting for Audible, uh, the the audiobook division of Amazon. So we're waiting on the tech specs to come back. And uh, it should be up any time. You can so, get the first nine chapters are actually out there for free as a promotion. So anywhere you get uh, podcasts, look for Kaya, K-I-Y-A, and the Morian Treasure. Uh, and you can get the first nine chapters as a free podcast. Fantastic. Well, what we'll do is we'll put that at the top of the show notes here. Robert, so if you swipe up, then we'll put that as the top link so you can click straight through to it and start listening to it now. And then if you like it, buy it. Great. Great. Nice way to end the podcast, Robert. See you later. See you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com. It's my day job when I'm not hosting this podcast. Tell me. Do you know what you want to achieve in the workplace, but you're struggling with how to achieve it? Maybe you suspect some traits of dyslexia are getting in the way. Well, that's where dyslexia productivity coaching comes in because we give you a simple productivity system for your Apple devices that harnesses the creativity that comes with your dyslexia. It includes proven methods like note-taking, reminders, speech-to-text, mind mapping, and more, all tailored to your needs. It'll free up your time and help you achieve outstanding results. Book a complimentary call to discuss it with me. And if you do it soon, I may also be available to coach you personally via Zoom. So don't be shy. Go to dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com or swipe up and book it now.